show, we have Rajneesh Chowdhury. Rajneesh Chowdhury's book, Systems Thinking for Management Consultants, Introducing Holistic Flexibility, has been published worldwide by Springer in 2019. Rajneesh currently serves as member of the editorial board of Systems Research and Behavioral Science, the official journal of International Federation for Systems Research. Rajneesh has been appointed fellow at the University of Hull Business School Center for Systems Thinking in the UK and the Open University Business School for his continued contribution to systems thinking in academia and practice. So tell us about sure. your latest book and the concept of holistic flexibility that you introduced in your book. Thank you very much, Steph, for inviting me on your podcast. It's a pleasure indeed. <laughs> so yes, uh, my book was published by Springer Worldwide last year, which is 2019. And the book has been named uh, Systems Thinking for Management Consultants, Introducing Holistic Flexibility. Um, I say that my book is really a culmination of extensive um, experience of application and experimentations with systems thinking in three main domains, which is number one, organizational development, second is social impact, and third is corporate reputation. Now, what I realized applying systems thinking is that there is a great complementarity between the concept of holistic approaches on one side and flexibility on the other side. And when I reflected back on my experience across sectors, across industries, and across different geographies in the world, um, I kind of reached the conclusion that it might be interesting for a manager or for a consultant to understand this intersection between holistic thinking and flexibility in a more conceptual way. And therefore, based on whatever I could reflect and understand, I coined a new conceptual lens, which I called holistic flexibility. Um, and I would like to define what holistic flexibility is that I had put forward in my book. And I say that it is a dynamic interplay between a state of mind that has the ability to absorb systemic complexity and a state of intervention that has the ability to embrace flexibility, both in intent and form. And you will notice that I have been very clear about holistic thinking as a state of mind and flexibility as a state of intervention. Because I feel that systems or holism is thought related and flexibility for a consultant is more application related. So therefore I say state of intervention. Now, what does it all mean? I started by uh, defining or understanding what do you mean by a system from my perspective. And uh, I said that the most basic concept of a holistic approach or a systems approach is how you're able to define a system. In other words, boundaries. How do you create a boundary around a system? And that's an intensely difficult job to do. Because a very fundamental, yeah, the very fundamental definition or an understanding of a system is that it's all encompassing, it's holistic, and you can keep on building one after the other, uh, or the other notion of the whole owns, as you say. There are smaller systems or subsystems which are part of larger systems. So where do you really define the boundary of a system? 
Um, and I said that when you are going out for an intervention as a manager or a consultant, there are three concepts that you need to keep in mind. And I borrow these from Ulrich, who talks about uh, values, the system, and facts. What Ulrich means by this is that you have a certain set of values in your mind based on which you define a system and based on the definition and your values, you study facts. And that in turn redefines your concepts and your values itself, which in turn again affects your system. So this is a never ending cycle that keeps on happening all the time based on which you define your boundaries. Once you define the boundary, you need to understand the concept of interrelationships, how the different sub-elements or the subsystems are in constant interrelationship between one another. And I strongly believe that a system would not exist if there are no interrelationships, right? It is interrelationships that make reality real of what we can observe around us or feel around us. Yes, absolutely. Once you understand, yeah, once you understand interrelationships, the third part that I talk about is emergence. And emergence is really about what comes out of the interrelationships within the boundaries of the system that you have defined. And the emergence could be intended or unintended emergence and consequences as well. Now, to give an example, I think as we record and talk about um, uh, you know, this, this podcast today, at a time when we're going through some of the most unprecedented times in the world today, uh, in the middle of coronavirus, right? Mm -hmm. And you really look at coronavirus, the fundamental point of where do you define a boundary? Is it a healthcare-related problem? Is it a virus? Is it something which is affecting the economic stability of the world? Is it something that's affective global politics and geopolitical conversations, uh, macroeconomics, microeconomics, exports and imports and business and industry? The point is, you just can't draw a boundary. The boundary is constantly expanding all the time. So this is the complexity of the system that I'm talking about. And in, in one of my recent articles, I said that a that despite all the advances that we as a human race has achieved, a flu in Wuhan has crippled the world. And that's the whole concept of interrelationship. There is a flu that has happened in one corner of the world, and it has really crippled the entire global system. And that is the power of interrelationship and emergence. And today, as we talk about this, we still don't know what the emergence would be like how it is going to impact the economics, the politics, the human society, civilization per se, going forward after the next few months. So we'll have to wait and watch what the emergence is all about. So, you know, understanding a system is about understanding these ideas of boundaries, interrelationships, and emergence, which is so strong and so important at one level, if you may say. If you look at flexibility on the, on the other side, and again, relating it back to coronavirus, you'll have to see that there is no fixed solution. Global leaders, business people, people who are in politics, or the civil society, or people, the general public like us, we have to be constantly agile, adaptive, and flexible in whatever we are doing, how we are taking decisions. And it's very common today to say that we are living by the day. 
because it's so difficult to even live by the week nowadays because we don't know what's going to happen in a week's time. So flexibility has got great virtue and great value, which often we don't realize. So, you know, I talked about coronavirus a lot and that wasn't the case when I was writing the book. So obviously you would not have found reference to coronavirus in my book. But the point I'm trying to make is that understanding of systems and understanding of flexibility can give you really dynamic perspectives of dealing with a complex world today, right? Uh, and emergence, yeah. And emergence can be uh, of different kinds, right? I've already talked about different kinds of possibilities in the situation that we're facing today, but it could be about emergence of people, of cultures, of structures, of our perspectives and value systems of humanity per se. Yes, absolutely. So Rajneesh, do you see an entanglement problem here where multiple nodes are coming together to create a sort of systemic challenge for consultants and change makers as it relates to the coronavirus? Ah, entanglement. Um, you've really used the word uh, from quantum physics, if I may say. Uh, entanglement is... Uh, so the way you define it, or I can even only try to, I'm not a physicist or a scientist by, uh, by any way. Um, so it's a relationship, it's a dynamic relationship between two nodes of energies within one particle at a subatomic level, which really creates an impact or an effect at a different node or a different set of interrelationships at a different subatomic levels, which you cannot see by your naked eye, right? But yet, this interrelationship at the subatomic levels between different atoms really create um, substances and forms and structures that we see around us. But it's very difficult to go down and identify those subatomic relationships at the level of quarks, as they say in quantum physics. Uh, I find the question interesting because I feel there's a great uh, similarity of what's happening in the situation of uh, coronavirus today. Because multiple nodes are getting formed at different than a variety of levels. Nodes between people, nodes between households, within households, communities, areas, um, localities, cities, countries, and this can go on and on and on. And at one level, you see human nodes happening, and at a parallel level, you also see nodes happening between politics and economics, economics and uh, uh, business, uh, businesses and human relationships, uh, leading to uh, you know uh, poverty and economic uh, gains at, at some level, and uh, increasing poverty at different level. So it's very difficult to define at what node what relationships are functioning. And yet at a very macro level, you see that everything is interconnected and entangled. So therefore, I think there's a serious entanglement problem here. And the more you're trying to loosen that entanglement, the tighter the entanglement is becoming, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that poses a tremendous challenge for um, systems consultants and managers. That really reminds me of a traditional way of approaching um, a, a systemic solution by a consultant. So Jackson once talked about uh, four kinds of approaches. 
One is pragmatism, where you are uh, armed with a set of tools or methodologies that you're familiar with. You go into a situation and you just use the methodologies that you're familiar with or you know that uh, will be useful at, in that particular situation, which is really pragmatism. The other is, uh, the second is isolationism. And isolationism means that you really favor one particular school of thought and you go into a situation ignoring other schools of thought and, and you apply your particular understanding or theory into solving that problem. The third approach is imperialism where yes, you have a dominant methodology or a school of thought, and you borrow from the other schools of thoughts and methodologies, but you still promote your dominant methodology. It's like an imperialist mentality. And finally, complementarism, which is you actually take advantage of a range of schools of thought and methodologies and make the best out of your approach and of the problem situation in a very empowering and <clears throat> accommodative way. So this is a traditional way of problem solving in terms of uh, approaches. But what I'm seeing today, coming back to the entanglement problem, is that none of these approaches or ways of thinking could be, quote unquote, the right way. I think as, as, um, as politicians, as consultants, as change makers, and as managers, we need to be moving towards more of a convener mindset. And by convener, I mean um, it's the ability or, or your interest in bringing a huge range of stakeholders together to really approach your own problem in a new light or in a multi-stakeholder way so that you use your relationships and, and your network as an agency of change itself. So power or a solution does not lie with a consultant or a team of experts. Power of a solution lies in the network of agency that floats within stakeholders. So I really think that in this entanglement, entangled situation, we need to move from a problem solver to that of a convener. You do propose various kinds of flexibility in your book, which I believe has been done for the first time in the literature of systems thinking and management consulting. Can you please elaborate? Sure. And uh, this really came from a first person experience of applying systems thinking and systems concepts uh, in consulting. Um, so I realized when I was, and this is really retrospective, when I was writing my 10 extensive case studies, which is part of the book, I realized that there are three kinds of flexibility that uh, I retrospectively, in a way, encountered with. And these are, number one, cognitive flexibility, uh, number two, formulative flexibility, and number three, substantive flexibility. Uh, let me try and explain uh, that. And, and all the three kinds of flexibility are important when you're bringing, when you're trying to bring about change in a situation. So number one, cognitive flexibility. And I feel that cognitive flexibility is the most central, the most primordial form of flexibility, if you may wish, uh, in, in the entire consulting or managerial journey. Because as I say, it all begins with the ability to think. Uh, Cognitive flexibility is flexibility of thought, flexibility of thinking, the ability to use um, different approaches uh, of, of for seeing the same situation 
and being able to interpret the same situation in different ways or from different schools of thought or from conformative or conflicting ideas, whatever it may be. But it, it, in, in simple words, how you're able to think about one situation in multiple ways. Um, and I borrowed a definition from uh, Bergland in my book uh, who, who talks about cognitive flexibility as representing someone's ability to shift thoughts and adapt to his or her behavior to an ever-changing environment. Levels of cognitive flexibility are reflected by your ability to disengage from a previous task and respond effectively to another task or to multitask. The more cognitive flexibility an individual has, the greater the chances are that this person can optimize their human potential. So Berglund really relates cognitive flexibility with human potential. So the more cognitively flexible you are, the more you're able to leverage and maximize your potential as a human being. So that has cast also a, a huge impact on how we in consulting or we in management uh, or, or how managers um, can really mix and match different approaches, think of, of innovative ways of bringing different methodologies to a particular problem situation and, and, and address the same. <clears throat> And in literature, you do see that there, are, there have been attempts made um, to mix and match methodologies. Um, uh, for example, the work of Sushil, for example, who talks about uh, who talks about five kinds of integration, which is uh, using method the first kind is using methodologies one after the other in succession. The second is using different techniques uh, for different parts. Of, of, of a problem situation. The third is both ways integration and how you're using two methodologies in multiple ways in a sequence. Uh, fourthly, if you're able to submerge the tools of one methodology into a larger methodology. And finally, he talks about a complete mixing or amalgamation of methodologies when you're trying to go uh, and solve a problem. All right, so in a way, if you see, that I have moved into the second kind of flexibility because one, you need to be able to think flexi flexibly to kind of mix and match approaches and methodologies. When I gave the example of Sushil and five kind of, um, you know, mixing of methods. So that is when I moved into what I called formulative flexibility. So it's more like bringing together of different forms to create meaning out of how you're thinking and how you're trying to apply your methodologies to solve a particular problem. And the important aspect about uh, formulative flexibility is that it's not blindly mixing, uh, mixing methodologies without any guidance or without a framework. I do believe as a consultant that even to mix methodologies, you need a particular framework, a particular meta methodology if you'd like, within which everything makes sense. So formulative method, uh, the flexibility becomes important because those kind of frameworks uh, and uh, meta methodologies really help you bring <coughs> flexibility into a more application mode. So the third flexibility that I talk about is substantive flexibility. And by that, I mean the power of substance really. Uh, what I say is that cognitive flexibility is thought-related, formulative flexibility is method-related, 
and substantive flexibility is a resource related because you might be able to think flexibly. You might have all the frameworks uh, to mix and match methodologies. But as a consultant, as a change maker, if you do not have the substance or the resource, be it time or, or finances or workforce, you actually cannot bring about a change or create a change. So substantive flexibility is equally important uh, when you talk about uh, kinds of flexibility. And if you would remember, I talked about flexibility as a state of intervention in my concept of holistic flexibility. And you cannot really intervene if you do not have the substance to intervene. Now, giving, uh, going back to a few examples, right? Uh, right from the cognitive to formulative to substantive flexibility. So let's say uh, as an organization development consultant, I have been invited to uh, do some kind of a restructuring exercise uh, in a particular organization. Now, for, from a point of cognitive flexibility, I might have a very uh, you know, hard systems approach where I view restructuring as a very technical functionalist ec exercise in which I do workforce right sizing, alignment of the right teams with the right business vision, creating the right kind of alignment structures, performance management systems, implement it and walk out, right? But going back to the concept of cognitive flexibility, if I want to, to be able to think flexibly from a thought perspective in that particular situation, I might shift my mind from a functionalist perspective to a more emancipatory or an interpretive kind of, of, a, of a thought process where I say that culture and values are equally important. So rather than taking a top-down hard systems approach, I can also take a quote-unquote a soft systems approach in which I try to understand the culture of the organization right, and really mesh it up with a business vision and see what kind of a culture, sorry, what kind of a structure might actually promote and um, you know, give shape to the culture of the organization itself. So here, if you see, I have a combination of both functionalist way of looking at restructuring and uh, a more interpretive way of looking at restructuring. So this is an example of, of cognitive flexibility. Coming to uh, methodological flexibility, Yes, you might have uh, two ways of looking at the same problem, but you still need some kind of frameworks to approach that particular problem. Uh, now, Mike Jackson, Jackson and Keyes talk about the system of systems methodology, which they say SOSM, where they really uh, identified different kinds of systems methodology depend methodologies depending on where they fall in a spectrum of participants and systems, right? For example, if you have a simple um, you know, situation where the parts are identifiable and the relationships are, are simple, you might probably use a very functionalist kind of an approach uh, for that particular uh, situation. Whereas you might have uh, a coercive situation, a coercive means that there is politics involved, there are values involved, um, and these are hidden relationships which, which you cannot unearth, and also there could be it, it, it there could be a large number of participants here, which is very difficult to go and identify the relationships. There you might have a more postmodern kind of an approach, which is also existing in uh, systems thinking. So it is the system of systems methodology at a, at a 
meta theoretical level by which you're able to identify what kind of an approach or a method is required for what kind of a situation. So finally, coming to substantive flexibility, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, you might come up with a recommendation of the most ideal structure uh, in, in the restructuring exercise for which you've been called in, but you will still need the resources in terms of you know, what kind of um, finances are required, what kind of communication and information exchange is required to really make uh, that particular recommended change real. So all the three kinds of flexibility are, flexibility are important in, um, uh, in, a, in a consulting exercise. So um, I actually summarized the three kinds of flexibility into uh, uh, three pillars in my book. Um, and I first talk about the aspect that is addressed. And I say that cognitive flexibility addresses thinking, formulative flexibility addresses planning, and substantive flexibility addresses action. Then I talked about dependency. And I say that cognitive flexibility, the dependencies are nature and nurture, both. For formulative flexibility, the dependencies are frameworks and models. And finally, for substantive flexibility, the dependencies are is resource availability. And finally, I also identified the relationship um, with related academic disciplines. And I say that for cognitive flexibility, the disciplines are psychology, psychiatry, neuroscience, and sociology. For formulative flexibility, the disciplines are management and administration. And finally, for substantive flexibility, the disciplines are material science, finance, human resources, and supply chain. And mind you, these disciplines or these dependencies are not exhaustive. Yes. So what is your take on the quote unquote learning in the consulting process? Learning is a very important element in any process, let alone consulting process. Uh, and specifically, if I'm talking about uh, systems thinking and a systems approach, the only way you can grow is by constantly and continually learning from your experiences and uh, the feedback that you have uh, in the areas where you apply your consulting knowledge. Um, so I actually talked about three kinds of learning, uh, which was initially uh, proposed by Argyris and later also refined uh, by, by Flood and Rom in their books later. Uh, and these are uh, single loop learning, uh, double loop learning and triple loop learning. What do I mean by that? Uh, number one, the single loop learning is more e um, efficiency related. For example, you have a particular goal in mind and, and you have a particular process to achieve that goal. If something is going wrong in the process, how do you constantly go back and refine the process, correct the errors in the process so that your end goal does not suffer? So the point is you never question your goal, right? So therefore I say, how do you make it more and more efficient? Reduce cost, reduce time, maximum results. So that is learning at a very basic level. So the system learns to constantly make yourself or the system more efficient. When you move to double loop learning, it's really questioning your goal itself. For example, um, uh, something interesting that's happening in India today is that the government is really investing a huge amount of money 
in uh, building toilets in rural areas to address the huge problem that India has, which is open defecation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, one approach and, and the initial approach the government adopted was really building uh, hundreds of thousands of toilets uh, across the rural area, uh, rural areas. So if you have a single loop learning approach, you might say, and this is just a number I'm putting, you might say that in one month, you need to build a thousand toilets. Let's say as an example, in single loop learning, you will constantly make sure that if you are building 950 toilets, why isn't it not 1,000? How can you make 950 1,000? Do you have to improve the supply chain? Do you have to make building faster? That's a typical example of a single loop learning. In double loop learning, you'll ask the question, is building toilets only the right approach or do you need to do something more than that? Now, the reason I bring this up is because it's fascinating. They found out that although a lot of these toilets were built in community areas or individual households in the rural areas, the actual people were not using the toilets for, for, for what it is meant to be used for, which is to use it as a toilet. But some right. people might actually be using it as a space to store your goods or a different room because they do not associate the usage of a toilet inside their premises. So a double loop learner will ask the question, is it being effectively use, used or not? So therefore, what you move to apart from building toilets is educating people in the rural areas about the importance of hygiene and safety, uh, which is associated with a modern toilet system. Right. So if you look at the difference, it's actually a huge difference. We've moved from efficiency to effectiveness, right? right? Yes, you might, instead of a 950, you might actually build 500 toilets, which is half of your target. But if you're educating the people more, your effectiveness is better. You're actually using, <clears throat> getting more people use the toilets than actually building a thousand toilets. So you've moved from efficiency to effectiveness, right? The third uh, <clears throat> level of learning, which is really the highest level of learning, is triple loop learning, where you ask the question, um, why are you doing what you are doing? As Flood and Rom asks, uh, ask in their book, is rightness buttressed by power or is power uh, buttressed by rightness? It's a grand statement. But mm -hmm. here you go back to certain fundamental values. So if a government, and again, a very hypothetical example. If somebody has sanctioned the building of toilets and uh, the education of, for the community to, to use the toilet, uh, in triple loop learning, you might actually go back and evaluate this more and more critically. You might ask, does somebody in the government have a hidden relationship with somebody else in the system who is benefiting from the contract of building toilets? and therefore making a lot of money. Wow, yes. And, I, and I'm not saying that's true. I'm just giving an example because I'm extending the example of toilet from effective from, from efficiency to effectiveness, right? Yeah, no, so that's a great example. Yeah, triple loop learning is the most fundamental form of learning, which is really, really difficult. And the reason this is important is because, and I bring it back to consulting and managerial practices, is because over the last few years, 
consultancies and managers have received great flack over uh, opaqueness of values and the kind of thought processes they operate in. And there's, it's common to use the word black box consulting, where you, uh, your client gives you an input and no one has a clue what goes on inside and you have an output which you're supposed to execute. Um, in fact, uh, in 2019, there was a damning report against one of the most prestigious consulting firms in the world, and this was in the New York Times, where they talk about how certain consulting outcomes have been related back to financial benefits of that particular firm, right? And those outcomes even relate to investments in illegal arms trades in Africa. Now, this is really, really serious, you see. And um, so therefore, this is where triple loop learning comes to the fore. Do not take your advice, do not take your relationships for granted, but ask the question, why am I doing this? Are my values right? Right. So therefore, there have been a lot of discussions and, and, and new thinking uh, in management science and in, in consulting approaches. And as a systems thinker, you simply cannot shy away from these kind of questions and discussions. And I talk about it um, you know, in great detail in my book, in the particular chapter of holistic flexibility. <clears throat> Consulting is about not just uh, an external expert, an expert, I use the word with quotations, coming and giving you ex ex uh, advice. It, it, it's also about what kind of ethics are you operating within? Are you really thinking about long-term sustainable solutions rather than just closing a project, earning your money, and walking out? So that's my take on learning um, to answer your question, Steph. That's awesome. And I think that actually kind of relates to my next question. Um, so do you think demonstrating responsibility is important for a consultant? And, and if so, why? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think, uh, as you said, it's related to your to the to the previous question, and and if you believe in triple loop learning, I think consulting itself becomes um, a very responsible process, and and I introduced the concept of responsible outcomes for a systems consultant, which I believe is the final should be the final aim of a systems consultant. What do I mean by responsible outcomes? Uh, I talk about three kinds of guiding deliverables. And mind you, I, I repeatedly say that these are espoused because in a particular project, <clears throat> it may be very difficult to achieve all of that uh, and you'll know soon why. Um, the first outcome I say systemic value add. So systemic value add is more looking at the triple bottom line, which is are you benefiting um, the economy, the society and the environment all at the same time? So you cannot afford in this day and age to address one aspect without addressing the other. For example, you might be consulting for a very large manufacturing firm uh, in, uh, in improving profitability uh, or, or, or increasing production, for example, which, which will have definitely have um, economic uh, impact uh, positively for the organization if you're improving or increasing um, your production. But that cannot come at the cost of polluting the environment or being irresponsible of how you're disposing of your waste. So you need to equally think of the environment and uh, do spend your resources 
in, in recycling facilities or um, uh, what we talk about today is a more circular economy. Yes, it in, involves investments in innovation, in waste disposable uh, waste disposals, but yes, you ought to do it. And finally, uh, the social outcomes. Of course, you'll have a huge number of people working uh, in your manufacturing firm. How closely are you thinking, or, or how intensely are you thinking about improvement of the living conditions of your people, making sure that yes, there should be no child labor, there should be no exploitation. Um, and exploitation doesn't mean uh, underpaying or or getting someone overworked. It also means, are you creating the right conditions for life of not only that person, but also their families and the communities, right? So therefore I say this is a systemic value add where you're trying to touch uh, uh, into multiple vari uh, variables within the system. The second um, out responsible outcome I talk about is emancipation. Emancipation, mind you, is a big word. Uh, and it's uh, and today in system science, people uh, talk a lot about improving and improvement of, of conditions. But to me, I really mean emancipation, and and that I mean it's not just improvement. Improvement, it's also about are you really empowering people um, to live their full human potential? Are you creating those conditions in which you're involving people, making them part of decision making? giving back to the people and the communities, and really looking at your stakeholders as a set of partners, yeah. right? And, and how do you work together, <clears throat> really creating the right conditions for them to prosper and um, you know, uh, fight any kind of subjugation or a domination that might exist in the society? So that is what I mean by emancipation. And the third uh, responsible outcome I talk about uh, is sustainable outcomes and sustainable solutions. And the word sustainability is easily used with environmental sustainability and for all good reasons. And I've already touched it when I talk about systemic value add. But here, when I say sustainable solutions, I mean solutions which are long term. Uh, and this may sometimes mean doing something which a client has not asked you to do. And I'll elaborate on that. For example, a client might uh, have a problem of attrition of employees, and you have been called in as a consultant uh, saying that, uh, well, review our pay structures uh, and, and make it more attractive to employees. The easy way for a consultant <clears throat> is to go study your uh, current pay structures, do a benchmarking exercise, revise pay, uh, you know, increase your variable bonuses, and um, believing that that will help uh, your employees stay in the organization and walk out. But when you look at sustainable solutions, you might actually offer the client to spend more time and understand why is the problem with, of attrition happening at the, at the first place. Once you go deep into the exercise and studying the culture and the organization itself, you might as well uncover that pay was not the problem at the first place. It might be that the managers are not equipped to deal with employees or, or their team members, and, it, and they don't have the adequate managerial skills or leadership competencies to give feedback, to motivate, or to encourage people. So the problem is not pay. The problem could be developing competencies of the organization. Yes, 
it, it, it takes more time. It is a more expensive exercise. Um, and you are not doing what the client is asking you to do. You are doing something else for which you might, um, you know, for which your client might incur an additional cost. But what happens is that your solutions and your recommendations become more sustainable. You actually address the problem of attrition and not increase pay and hold it for, uh, you know, a short period of time. Taking this beyond, uh, when I talk about sustainable solutions, I also say that capacities within the organization must, must be developed so that after you walk out as a consultant, the organization is able um, to live up with your rec recommendations and implementations and, and really revise them from time to time. So you're actually not holding on to your knowledge. We're actually sharing your knowledge. You might be working very closely with the HR teams of your client and building capacities in them so that once you walk out, they're independent and capable enough to carry forward um, you know, uh, the, the, the concepts and the solutions that you had once put forward. So these are the three tenets of uh, responsible outcomes, which is systemic value add, emancipation, and sustainable solutions. And I do talk about it in my book. These are tough solutions, tough outcomes for a consultant to really deliver on all of these. But what we should do is really espouse for uh, whatever is possible. Yeah, absolutely. And especially with that last example that you gave, um, you know, dealing with um, the management um, and the relationship between management and workers, uh, where the workers wanted perhaps increased pay, uh, that might very well have been a, uh, a Band-Aid solution, but as a consultant, you know, going beyond and addressing that root cause is really going to make that change much more sustainable and better off for everyone, right? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I see a lot of synergy from what you say with integral thinking. Have you explored this in your works? Well, I feel there's a very powerful relationship between systems thinking and integral thinking. Um, I haven't explored integral thinking in my book that came out last year. But more and more, I understand integral thinking. Uh, I believe that the two cannot be treated in separate manners. There is a huge complementarity between the two. And the literature suggests different things. There's one school of thought that says uh, that um, systems thinking is a part of integral thinking. And there's a different school of thought that would say that actually, you need to think integrally if you need to be a systems thinker. So one subsumes the other, depending on which side of the fence you fit in. And uh, honestly, I don't want to fit in any one of the sides um, of, uh, of this debate. But what I see is that um, when I talk about critical systems thinking more specifically, and you hear me a lot talking about emancipation, critiquing yourself, um, you know, uh, challenging your mental models, drawing your boundaries, and I speak extensively about it, uh, I do feel that you have to understand and relate to the four quadrants of integral thinking if you have to be a good systems thinker. Now, what are these four quadrants? Uh, it was Ken Wilbur who talked about, um, you know, uh, the two axes, which is the vertical axis of, uh, or, or the y-axis 
of uh, uh, the individual and the collective um, and the x-axis, the horizontal axis of, um, you know, uh, the interior and on the right hand side is the exterior. And in my work, uh, I talk a lot about culture and values because again, going back to the whole idea of cognitive flexibility, I give the example of how you can actually move from a functionalist perspective to a more, uh, you know, interpretive perspective. Uh, perspective, which encompasses your culture and values. So that becomes important as well. Uh, systems thinking and integral thinking are two sides of the same coin. Um, there is a huge amount of complementarity, uh, synergy, and intersection between the two. Uh, so integral thinking was uh, really coined and conceptualized by Ken Wilbur uh, based on his extensive uh, research and experimentations and experiences with multiple schools of thought and, and uh, integral thinking is more like the theory of everything where he brings in Western and Eastern uh, you know, philosophy, uh, material sciences, uh, social sciences, all put together into his famous uh, model where he talks about the individual and the collective on the y-axis and the interior and the exterior uh, in the x-axis by which you get four quadrants. And let's actually explore this with the current example of the coronavirus situation. And then we can see uh, the kind of synergies it has with systems thinking and a lot of the examples uh, I have given till now um, during our discussion since the beginning. So the upper left quadrant is what he says, uh, the individual interior uh, quadrant, which is more about your thought processes, the way you think, your values, your belief systems. And in a way, it's very cognitive, if I may say. And I talked extensively about cognitive flexibility uh, in my book um, as, as a part of uh, a systems, um, systems approach. And... Um, if you look at the current situation of uh, COVID that, that's happening, uh, as an individual, I, and I do mean I figuratively, I need to be self-aware of uh, where my mental agility lies in a situation which is so threatening, which is so frightening, where it, it's, it's really challenging our fundamentals of safety, existence, and so many things. So the interior and the individual uh, becomes the center point of resilience here, which is the upper left. Um, and again, cognitive flexibility is a very important element when you look into it. But it doesn't really stop there. It also goes to the culture and the values within which we live and we exist. And that's actually moving into the lower left quadrant of Wilbur, which is the interior collective, which is defined by our culture and values. Um, mm -hmm. Look at the current coronavirus situation and how cultural artifacts um, are, are, can be leveraged and used and interpreted in different ways. So it's, it's very common in European or Western cultures to give a hug when you meet somebody new. But look at the Eastern culture, the Japanese bow or the Indian namaste, which does not um, which which doesn't have a physical contact, but it's folding your hands and greeting one another, right? And right. that's a cultural construct, right? It's a cultural artifact, the namaste or the bow. But the whole world is adopting the bow or the namaste today because it's not really prudent to give a hug when you meet somebody because of the current coronavirus situation. 
right? Um, at the other level, if you look at the upper right quadrant of um, uh, integral thinking, which is the individual exterior, which deals with uh, things like physiology, your behaviors, your action. Um, again, you need to uh, think how cognitive flexibility can be extended more towards kinesthetics, the way uh, you're exercising, the way you're identifying with your physiology, physiology, uh, how you and how that's affecting your actions and behaviors in different ways, right? And to be really resilient and live through this great threat that's um, impinging on us today, you have to be aware of the exterior world from an individual perspective as well, which is the upper right quadrant. Finally, if you move to the lower right quadrant, which is the exterior collective, it's more about the system. And we have spoken extensively about global systems, human systems, macroeconomic scenario, the political system, supply chain, how everything is getting affected today. So therefore, if you are in a position of a change maker or a consultant or a manager or even an individual today in this mm -hmm. day and age, you have to be aware of all the four quadrants to live a life of well-being, a life of resilience, and a, and a life of greater understanding when everything is so entangled in the current situation. And we talked about entanglement earlier as well. Yeah. So coming back to your point, I think systems thinking and integral thinking are greatly interconnected. And this relationship may be uh, covertly explored in different works in the past. Uh, in fact, Mingers and Brocklesby in Critical Systems Thinking talks about an approach where they bring together social understanding, personal understanding, and material understanding, borrowing from Habermas's theory. How appreciation of all the three, analysis of all the three, assessment of all the three, and action to impact all the three, which is social, personal, and material, is important if you want to bring about a systemic change. And that systemic change can be immediately related to all the four quadrants of um, integral thinking. Um, so I think systems thinking really gives you the artifacts and integral thinking really gives you, in a way, the perspective. Um, so and to make sense of the world and for a consultant and for a manager who really wants to intervene into bringing about change, you need both artifacts and a perspective. So I think both systems thinking and integral thinking have to go, has to go together, um, you know, to create meaning in our work uh, and uh, create sustainable solutions. Absolutely. Now, when you come back, uh, when you relate these four quadrants of integral thinking um, to systems thinking, and given uh, the kind of examples and the theories I've espoused in my book, I cannot see a different way without understanding uh, both systems and integral theory as two sides of the same coin, because they're just enriching one another. In fact, uh, in Wilbur's 1977 book, uh, The Spectrum of Consciousness, uh, he had constructed something called the human con consciousness as a system itself, <clears throat> right? So the way you think uh, your consciousness it's, is itself a system. And you would remember the three 
um, uh, you know, uh, eternal triangle, as I said, uh, the, the eternal factors of facts and systems and values, which uh, was espoused by uh, Ulrich, and I talked about it. And that is how uh, your consciousness in, is, in a way, influenced. Right. So I feel that uh, that Wilbur's construct of human consciousness, the system, uh, really helps us to understand the system itself. Yes. Right. Um, also, there is this entire meta methodology by Mingers and Brocklesby in critical systems thinking, where they talk about the social world, the personal world, and the material world, borrowing from Habermas's theory. And to talk about how can we appreciate the three worlds? How can we analyze them? How can we assess? And how can we bring action into realizing the three worlds to create greater value for the human system, right? And again, I do not see how without thinking integrally, you can actually bring the entire three worlds together to create value uh, for humanity uh, per se. Um, so honestly, to answer your question, yes, there's a huge complementarity between systems thinking and integral thinking. Uh, and I think personally to me, if, even if I don't talk about it in my book, there is, if I may say, a very implicit understanding that this relationship works and it works very well. Yeah, absolutely. That was, that was awesome. So finally, what does all this mean in the context of management in the current climate of socioeconomic change, or call it crisis? Yes, I wish I had the answer. This is the question where, ev where everyone is struggling to find an answer because we simply do not have an answer and we're living each day as it comes. Um, but as I've tried to emphasize earlier, Maybe a reliance going back to systems thinking and integral thinking um, gives us a perspective of how to understand the world. Um, we're dealing with a situation here where we're seeing tremendous shifts in uh, the whole socioeconomic scenario uh, in a process of entanglement that we talked about. Um, you know, I want to quote from um, uh, Kaushik Borua, who works for the United Nations, a uh, few weeks back, who wrote an article uh, to talk about uh, various aspects uh, that that's influencing the world and being influenced by the current situation, right? And and he says that we are emphasizing and pushing for social distancing, and when you look at a country like India, uh, social distancing is may work for a certain section of the society but it doesn't work for a huge majority of the population where huge number of people still live in slums, right? Mm -hmm. We've got some of the areas which has the highest population density in the world, 2% of the global uh, population who are homeless and 20% who um, lack adequate housing. How do you impose social distancing in those kind of a situation? So, also, we have had a huge extensive lockdown in India, but we see about the great ramifications it has had negatively to daily wage laborers. And there is again, more than some statistics say that more than 50% of the population, earning population are daily wage laborers were actually earning and eating from on a day-to-day -day basis, who have been thrown into abject and deep poverty from which they may never return. And these are creating systemic 
challenges for the world to come, right? So this again uh, makes me go back to what we talked about in integral thinking and the four quadrants. How do we imagine our own selves, our societies, our relationships, the collective, the interior and the exterior? Um, so therefore I see great value in relying back to systems and integral thinking to understand the world, uh, to understand some of the challenges that we face and maybe, uh, as someone says, it's not devising solutions, but really creating the next adaptive move. Mm -hmm. There's a big difference between creating a solution and creating the next adaptive move. The next adaptive move means that you're constantly adapting yourself with great awareness of yourself, of the society, and challenging your own mental models, not being rigid, and keeping learning at the center of it. There is a time where we may have to sustain a lot of practices. We may have to go through a huge amount of restructuring. There will be a lot of shifts in our thinking and understanding. And finally, we are at a stage when we really have to reshape the world that we live in, right? Um, so yes, you see flexibility uh, being already exercised in a great deal in the world today. Uh, some of my favorite examples are, you know, there is a wedding dress boutique in New York that really has shifted its business to making protective masks. And it's not really a business anymore today. It, it's a social cause, right? So there's a huge amount of flexibility being exercised there. You, you hear of uh, luxury perfume brands in Italy that is really manufacturing hand sanitizers today. There are automobile companies there are um, uh, companies specializing in military warfare, uh, which is that they are really producing uh, ventilators today uh, to cater to the demand of ventilators around the world. So you see flexibility already being introduced uh, and used um, in a great number of industries. And if you see these examples, you see the three kinds of flexibility being uh, exercised in a very nice way, right, from cognitive to formulative, to substantive flexibility. So in the world today, you cannot but live flexibly. And flexibility exercised at the time of COVID um, uh, has been a great welcome change, uh, a great social cause, and um, uh, a great strategy for sustainable solutions going forward. Thank you so much, Rajneesh, for joining us on our show today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, learning more about holistic flexibility, and especially as it relates to the, our current world situation today as the coronavirus unfolds. We've learned so much about the importance of flexibility, um, whether that be um, internal sort of cognitive flexibility or the way that we relate to others and the systems that you know really govern our day-to-day -day life. Um, as you said, the situation is not only changing week by week, but day by day. Um, so I thank you for um, just really helping ground um, the concept of holistic flexibility into um, the current situation that we are experiencing in our world today. So. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, we look forward to hopefully having you on the show again soon. Thank you very much indeed. It's been an honor to be on your show.